Morning, church. Great to see uh, more and more of your faces returning, and uh, good morning to those of you who are watching online today. Uh, are you a person who um, loves to set goals and then work like crazy to achieve them? Uh, would people, would your friends, your family call you competitive? Uh, do people look to you to uh, get things done? We are in week three of our series on the nine personality types. We're trying to discover how God has uniquely created us and how we can grow deeper in our love for others and in our love for God, what we Methodists call uh, sanctification. And today we are looking at the three, usually called the achiever. Achievers are success-oriented, they are image conscious, they are super competitive, they are hardwired for productivity. They are optimistic, uh, hardworking with big dreams that inspire everybody around them, which makes them easy to love. They are well-dressed, uh, politically savvy, and always working the crowd. And while most people like to take a vacation to rest, uh, threes want to take a vacation to do something, uh, whether it's scuba diving with sharks or uh, bicycling across Southeast Asia or base jumping in Peru. And, and good luck convincing them not to take along a briefcase full of work to do on vacation. Now, when you talk to them, you think that they are listening to your every word, when actually they are looking over your shoulder to see who else is there. And so whether they're in the classroom, <coughs> on the athletic field, in the CEO's office, a pastor in a church, or in a mission field, threes want to be the stars. You see, they grow up believing that the world only values people for what they do rather than for who they are. And this can cause them to confuse success for love. And so they have to ace every test, close every deal, and break every corporate sales record. In his autobiography, entitled Open, a tennis star Andre Agassi shared with the world that he hated playing tennis. <laughs> and what drove him to become a champion wasn't a passion for the game, but to win the heart of his father, whom he described as unable to tell the difference between loving me and loving tennis. What a shame, don't you think? To invest your entire life into something that you hate? You see, this can be a problem for threes. Now, they can be social chameleons. They can match their personality to what they need to, to win the spouse they want or, or to the sale they're trying to close. Uh, they can read a room in seconds and answer the question, what persona do I need to craft and put on to win these people's approval? Who do they want me to be or become before they will love and admire me? And so hence the sin 
they struggle with the most is deception. Uh, deceiving others, yes, but even more so deceiving themselves. For they have a great tendency to lose touch with who they authentically are. They so identify with this uh, false self that they have crafted over time that they actually forget who they truly are. And so not only do they struggle with knowing who they are, they, they find themselves oftentimes driven. Uh, driven to be number one, driven to compete, driven to overachieve driven to do more and to do it better. And so they spend too much time at the office or too much time uh, at the gym because for them, failure is unacceptable. It makes it hard for them to admit their mistakes. And they may get to the point where they are desperate for your attention and it can make them mean and petty and vengeful. That's a three at their worst. But when they surrender their lives to Christ, when they allow uh, the Lord to begin to change them, when they have nothing to prove anymore because they are secure in, in, in God's grace, they are amazing people. They no longer have to flaunt their success or sell you a line. They're no longer terrified of failure. In fact, they will learn from their mistakes and, and share with others openly what they have learned they're generous, and oftentimes you will find them volunteering their considerable skills to help organizations and nonprofits to, to be their best. They love to set goals to, to rise to challenges and, and to solve problems. But you see, they've come to believe they no longer need to work 80 hours a week, and so they learn how to balance their energy between work and Sabbath. They feel valued based on who they are rather than on what they need to accomplish. So maybe you're a three. Maybe this sounds awfully similar. Maybe to somebody that you live with or maybe to a good friend. We have several threes on our staff. Uh, two of them are going to share with you, uh, Melissa and Ron, on what it means to them to be a three. So an adjective often associated with the type number three achiever is competitive. How does that fit you? Well, I'm a volleyball coach, so I'm already competitive. That's kind of my my gig is being competitive, but <clears throat> I've always been very competitive and to the point where if I'm not good at something, I don't do it because I wouldn't be very competitive at doing it. So I don't, I skied once, I was terrible at it and I've never done it again because I just can't compete being a skier. I can't be the best. What is your deepest fear? I think failure is a big part of it for me because failure equates to not being a success and therefore then impacts upon your competency. No one wants to have the, the loser around. The society is designed for winners, not losers. And threes really take it to heart and make that a part of their, their competence 
and uh, their competition, their competitiveness. What is your greatest need? I guess just that people think that I have value. What I do is I have value because I'm able to do what I do excellently. Um, I think it goes back to acceptance, but also organization, because no matter what we do, uh, success depends upon a plan. And if you don't have that plan, then you're not going to be successful. So you have to have that plan to be a success. And then if you're a success, then you're liked. So organization is all a part of having that plan that'll step its way towards acceptance and, and organization. How does your type play out in your relationship with Christ? I think for me, I know a lot of scripture and that's kind of a type three thing. Knowing a lot and being ready and prepared and having the plan that Ron has talked about. Um, but I think sometimes that you, I kind of get focused on the making sure I know enough and not on just being accepted and valued for who I am as opposed to knowing enough or doing enough for um, the kingdom. Yeah, like so many things, like, like Melissa said, and going back to that plan, that once I've decided I want to do something, I set a plan, and it becomes so much deeply embedded in who I am and what I'm doing that, that um, I, I keep honing that plan towards w my goal, towards being a success at that plan. And as long as my plan is Christ-driven, then I know I'm on the right track. What I have to be cautious of is having it become a works type of thing. Then all of a sudden I'm doing it for the wrong reason and it, it can happen. It's, it's a downfall to a number three. Well, if there's one person in the Bible who epitomizes a three, it would be a man named Jacob. Uh, it began, in fact, the very day that his, he was born, and we find the story in Genesis 25, beginning with verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Imagine starting your family at 60. Good for Isaac. Verse 27. Well, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. That's why he was called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. 
Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Jacob is a twin born to Isaac and Rebekah. But his twin brother, Esau, comes out first. He has so much hair that they name him Esau, which literally means hairy. Not H-A-R-R-Y, but H-A-R-Y. And fortunately, they gave him a nickname, uh, Edom, which means red. So how much better to be called red than hairy? Anyhow, uh, Jacob comes right out behind him, holding on to Esau's heel, and so they named Jacob, they, they called him Jacob, which means deceiver. Esau is the firstborn. And therefore he is entitled to a double portion of the inheritance. But even more important, he will receive the blessing of the covenant promise that God made to Abraham and, and then to Isaac. But from the day they are born, Jacob wants that position. He wants to be ahead of his brother. The boys, as different as night and day. Esau loved the outdoors. He loved to wear blue jeans and flannel and hunt and fish and trap. Uh, he drove a pickup truck with a gun rack in the back, played football on his high school team, and drank cheap beer. Jacob, he loved the indoors. He was impeccably dressed, probably had a number of sweater vests in his closet. Drove a Lamborghini, uh, enjoyed cooking in his mother's kitchen, playing tennis, and sipping 12-year-old Buchanan Scotch whiskey. Jacob was his mother's favorite, and Esau was Isaac's. Well, you heard the story. Esau comes in from hunting. He's starved. Jacob has a pot of stew cooking, and Esau wants some. Jacob, always the deceiver, always the conniver, says, sure, just give me your birthright as the firstborn child. And Esau, who is more interested in satisfying his immediate need rather than his future, uh, agrees. Well, years pass. Isaac is growing old. He's nearly blind. He fears he's going to die soon, so he calls in his eldest son, Esau, and asks him to prepare a meal of his favorite wild game, and then he will give him the blessing that would go to the eldest son. And so Esau heads out for a day of hunting. But hearing all of this is Rebekah. And she hatches a scheme with Jacob to cheat Esau out of his blessing. She cooks up a great meal. She dresses Jacob in Esau's clothes, even putting on him the skins of a goat so he'll feel hairy to his father. And he takes the meal to his father and tells him, I am Esau, your eldest son. Now his father can't see and even though it sounds like Jacob's voice, it, it smells like Esau, and it feels like Esau, so it must be Esau. And he gives him the blessing of the firstborn. When Esau returns home, 
and discovers Jacob's deception, he is beside himself twice now. He has been beaten by his younger brother. And so he forms a plot to kill him. Well, uh, Rebecca again overhears Esau's plans. You know, if you live in tents, you have to really be careful what you're saying, you know, because other people will hear you. And she sends Jacob far away to the home of her brother, uh, Laban, who lives in Paddan Aram, to get a wife. And so here's Jacob. He is on the run. He has left home. He has left his family. And he is reaping the consequences of his scheming ways. You see, Jacob felt lost on the day of his birth. He comes into the world angry and frustrated that life was not going to turn out the way he believed it should. His very name denotes his character, somebody who struggles, somebody who deceives to get things his own way. He cheats his brother out of his blessing, and then he runs away. He, he runs away from his family. He, he runs away from the land that was to be his. And most importantly, he runs away from the relationships that had been most significant in his life. But that was the price of always wanting to be number one. But the marvelous thing about God is that he's always running after us. It is God who initiates the covenant. You see, God initiates this covenant of love with you and me because, quite frankly, we're not all that interested in God. We're oftentimes running away from God. We're going in the opposite direction, and that's exactly what Jacob is doing. And in so doing, he runs smack dab into God at a place called Luz. It's nightfall. There's no place to lodge for the night. And so Jacob lies down under the stars with a, a rock for a pillow, and he begins to dream. And he dreams of a ladder that reaches up into heaven, and in that dream, God speaks to him for the very first time. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie I will give to you and to your descendants and your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth, and I will be with you. You see, what God is doing is renewing the covenant promise that he first gave to Abraham and then to Isaac. Jacob meets God there for the first time, and he renames Luz Bethel, which means house of God. And he makes a vow that God will be his God. And he takes his very first step in his spiritual transformation. And so with this assurance, Jacob arrives at his uncle's house. He wins and marries uh, Laban's two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And he settles down to raise a big family and to work the family farm with Laban. And Laban, he's as much a conniver as Jacob, and, and, and year after year they try to connive and, and cheat the other. <laughs> Jacob may have met God at Bethel, but he is still a number three in process. 
And no matter how much wealth and possessions he gains, it's just not enough. Happiness seems to elude him. He just doesn't seem to know who he is. And I think that's a core question for a lot of us. Uh, Probably a lot of our young people who are getting ready to head out to college here in a few months are asking that very question. I have been defined by my family, by my high school, by, by my friends, by my relationships, my school, where I live. What will define me now? Who am I? What is my identity? What is the meaning? What is the purpose of my life? You see, that was Jacob's question. As a second son, he had to fight and connive to get the blessing, the inheritance from his father. And yet once he had it, he realized that it wasn't enough. You see, Jacob is not at all clear who he is. He seems to be constantly struggling to, to gain more, to, to have more power, more influence, more livestock, and the brides that he wanted. I, I wonder if, like Agassiz, Jacob really wasn't simply trying to earn his father's love. Finally, Jacob's relationship with his father-in-law comes to a crisis point. Once again, he finds himself fleeing in the middle of the night. But he's too slow with his children and the livestock, and and Laban catches up with him. Uh, Had it not been for God's intervention, it might have been a, a loss of life, a catastrophe. So Laban and Jacob, they make their peace. They go their separate ways. But no sooner does he get out of that crisis behind him than he runs into another one. He receives news that his Esau brother is coming to meet him, and he's coming with 400 armed men. So he assumes the worst, that Esau is making good on his promise to kill him. You see, all the chickens have come home to roost All of his scheming and deceiving have finally caught up with him. And so he he, he develops this elaborate plan to buy off Esau with huge gifts of sheep and and goats and camels and and cows and donkeys. He he sends them off ahead of him and uh, across the Jabbok stream and he intends to spend the night by himself. And he thinks he's all alone, but he's not. Someone else is there. He can't quite make it out who it is. Is it a, is it a man? Is it, is, is it an angel? Or is it God himself? We don't really know. But what we do know is that there is this encounter there, and it turns into a wrestling match. And, and all night long they, they wrestle. Something incredible is at stake, and neither one of them are going to give in. Until finally the divine being strikes Jacob and and puts his hip socket out of joint. What excruciating pain, but but Jacob is not going to let go. He is not going to give in. He wants to win this competition. And as the first light of morning begins to appear, the man says, you've got to let me go. But Jacob says, I will not until you bless me. So this divine visitor asks him, what is your name? And he says, Jacob, the deceiver. 
You see, by simply stating his name, Jacob summarizes his entire life. His name indicates someone who will struggle and strive to get his own way. That was his identity. That was his character. And so his opponent gives him a new name. No longer are you the deceiver, Jacob, but the name I give you now is Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and you have prevailed. One Bible scholar says that by giving him a new name, that this divine being gives Jacob a new identity, a, a new set of values, a new affirmation about who he really is. He, he gives Jacob really what he needs the most. You see, in antiquity, it was believed that selfhood was expressed in the name that was given to you. And so Jacob's new name signifies this new self. No longer is he dece the deceiver, but he is Israel, which means one who has wrestled, one who has striven with God. And in the process, God gives Jacob this new identity. But striving with God has left its mark. You see, we don't wrestle with God and leave unscathed. Conducting business with God and conferring the truth about who we really are, it will change us and will not continue to be the, the person that we were before. Jacob gets this new identity, but at a great physical cost. He will limp around for the rest of his life, a constant reminder of a wrestling match with God that he neither won nor lost. So it's not surprising that Jacob asks the very question that Moses will ask upon Mount Sinai many, many years later, what is your name? But the heavenly being gives no answer. Instead, he just asks a question, why is it that you ask my name? Now God will reveal his name to Moses, I am that I am, Yahweh. But here with Jacob, the conniving stealer, he wrestles all night, puts his hip out of joint, and gives him a new name. And I believe that you and I are desperately in need of receiving the blessing of a new identity, a new value that simply cannot be bestowed by another human being. I mean, who can change us at a fundamental level? Who will Stay the night with us as we fight like Jacob did. This scripture suggests that God will do that. That God is willing to wrestle with us because God alone can give us that new name, that new identity, that new character that we need so badly. And so the next day Jacob prepares to meet Esau. The gifts of sheep and cattle that he sent ahead to soften up his brother are appreciated, but Esau really wants nothing to do with them. He says, I have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all that I need. Did you hear that? And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. 
Clearly, Jacob is now on the road to a healthy three. No longer needing to compete and beat his brother. No longer needing to be number one, but generous and, and grateful and putting his relationship with his brother over his wealth and possessions. No longer does he need to be first. So how do we do that? Us, we threes, how do we get on that road to healing and to grace? Let me mention a few things that we can do. And the first and the hardest, the most difficult is this. Threes need to take an inventory of who and what gets sacrificed when they frantically race about trying to beat everybody else. Have we sacrificed our spouses? Have we sacrificed our children? Have we sacrificed our health or our friendships? Have we sacrificed our relationship with God? What does that look like? And then secondly, to be on the road with Jacob, we need to find a time and a place each and every day to be silent and to meditate upon God's Word. Now, we all need to do this. All of us need to find that time. But, but threes, you see, threes value action. Threes value doing. And so, so for them to sit and to be still and to listen to God on a daily basis can be life-transforming. Number three, take a vacation. And don't take work with you. Don't call the office. In fact, better yet, for a three, just leave your phone at home. It might change your life. And then begin crafting a new definition of success for your life. Uh, a definition that will honor God. Now, you can be materially successful and, and honor God. Jacob was still a wealthy man, but you see, he had a brand new set of priorities what he owned was not now as important to him as his relationships. And then finally, take what you have learned and invest it in other people and work at helping them to shine and to be a success. Jacob is on the road to recovery, but the whole script of his life has not yet been changed. There's still a process of, of transformation towards holiness that must take place. He may limp a little, but he does not yet reflect God's character. Jacob is still there underneath the new Israel. But here's what I want the threes to know. That the same God that changed Jacob's life is a God who can change our lives. And we never have to, to urge God. We never have to wrestle with God to do that. He, he wants to do that. All the scheming, all the deceiving, all the lying, all of the, the sinning that we do won't in the end give us what we want most in life. But we have a God who relentlessly pursues us, who longs to encounter us, to, to wrestle with us, and to give us a new name and a new identity. And while you may question your ability to measure up, I want you to know that God loves you unconditionally. You are loved for simply being who you are.
You see, God sees beyond what you do, and he sees who you truly are. Let's pray. Oh God, like Jacob, we have done some of that deceiving ourselves. Some of us, God, are driven to get ahead, to be number one, to want to win no matter what it costs. But thank you, God, that you chased Jacob down and he found you and that changed everything. Oh God, put us on that road, on that road towards grace and healing. Help us to reprioritize. Help us to rewrite our own definition of success. That we may truly be a success in the eyes of our Creator and our Redeemer. Even Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.